Gather round and you shall hear the bullshit life of Paul Revere's fucking guy. <laughs> History, I'd like to follow me down the rabbit hole. History, I'd like to frankly, I want to know. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Hilf. History I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, and I'm glad to have you in the den. That's the Deluxe Edition Network. To find more great podcasts in the den, click the link in our show notes or go to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Now, this hilf features one of the most formative moments in American history, the Boston Massacre. 1770, when a cluster of British soldiers fired into a civilian crowd in Boston, killing five. Right before the Tea Party, before the Declaration of Independence, America had her first shooting. Now, it took place over 250 years ago, but it has so many hallmarks of our modern day. Victim exploitation, media spin, courtroom drama, and of course, a surprise ending. To thank for this hilf are the co-hosts of the hit sports podcast, In a Pickle Radio. Dave Houghton and Sarah Vitalik join me to get nasty with some founding daddies. (laughs) Let's get started. You know what the best part about the massacre is now? What? It's now a great tourist trap where people sell you discounted garbage. Yes. Great. So, just, it's very American. Your podcast is so cool. In a pickle radio, I've listened. Here's what I love about it. You guys do sports. You do culture. You do a little history. Mm-hmm. You give us the context. I feel like if you are are on the nerd spectrum, leaning more towards, like, history, but you really want to be able to talk to a sports nerd around right. the dip at the next party, I think In yes. a Pickle Radio will segue you nicely into the sports nerds. Yeah, our whole show is basically the less glamorous side of sports because, I mean, what you see and what you read is always like, you know, the rah-rah good stuff. And it's just like, you can't have everything be roses. There's got to be some shit totally. that grows out of it. Well, and you guys do a great job of like going into the annals of sports history to like every now and again, you bring up a good old fashioned one, but you also, you're cutting your, 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 uh, rip from the headlines. You guys bring this stuff right now to the like, Hey, this might be buried because it doesn't do great for like Jersey sales. Right. Right. (laughs) Or the memory of a like recently retired athlete that we'd all like to believe is doing really well, but actually has been found naked wandering around a golf course. We just want to let you know. Yeah, that's what's going on. It yeah. It shows you what happens after sports as well. You know, sometimes you get hit in the head too many times and then you drive your car off the road and wander around with your pants around your ankles. I mean it's just it happens. Yeah. Yeah. It's a typical yeah. Friday night yes. for us. Well, it's like, I mean, it's the whole thing. We watch for the peaks and the valleys, man. Right. Absolutely. Is that is that why you guys started this podcast? Uh, because you have sort of a shared uh, love of the flip side of the coin? So I had started this podcast about three years earlier with uh, another friend of mine 
and we were doing just baseball and we were doing stories of like players who had it all and then lost it due to like you know drugs alcohol whatever and then when he left the show i kind of started doing it myself and it just wasn't as good as there was no banter so it was it was kind of lame episodes were only about 15 16 minutes because how much do i want to talk about something you know and right. Sarah, being my biggest supporter through all those years, uh, I kind of tricked her into coming onto the show once, and then <laughs> I made her sign a contract where she can never leave. And then we kind of just turned Good. the show into yeah. like uh, crazy, messed up headlines in sports. And then every so often, That's we'll so sprinkle cool. in a little like fuckery. <laughs> you know <laughs> i so, love that my favorite yeah. word little, yeah, little, little story, story yeah. little history this this month this person did this and uh you know went to trial and if you didn't yeah. know is in jail and is and dead, is dead. <laughs> in december we're doing a story about joey pepitone he, he played for the yankees and uh yeah. he you know wrapped his car around a, a pole he's been dui'd a bunch of times he posed in playgirl I mean, all that stuff. So nice. It's it's mm-hmm. we just like to find the the most randomest athlete and maybe just uh, you know tell uh, everything that, about them after their during or after their sports. Oh, it's great! And fans of your show will know this already, but you guys have a really great fun rapport. You do make the banter so cool and fun, and it, and it makes sense to me now. So, Sarah, you are a fan turned co-host. Is that right? Yes, yes. And Dave and I have been friends. We went to high school yeah. together. So we've known each other for 20 some uh-huh. odd years. And we've had the same banter from then yeah. to now where it's like, yeah, I, I, I do want to fight you. But, you know, somewhere in my heart, I do love you, you know? like. <laughs> so it's a brother-sister relationship that makes uh, it thrive. And you guys really are, are ge- geographically or far apart. Dave, you are in Chicago, and Sarah, you're in Boston. No. Is that right? No, no, we're both we're both in Boston. No, we're you're both in Boston. We're like twenty minutes <gasps> from yeah, each we other. We actually live twenty <laughs> minutes from each other, but we don't. Yeah, twenty minutes. We don't want to meet up and hang out. Listen, that's a very LA thing to do. That's too much. But you want you want to know the truth. My sister Lisa lives in Boston, and it's the worst driving experience I've ever had in my life. And I quickly remind her from the passenger seat as a. 10 plus year resident of Los Angeles that her city is the worst. I was like, LA sucks. Like you sit in your car in LA a lot too, but you have eight lanes going everywhere. And yeah, you're sitting in your car, but you're going at least 40 miles an hour and you can get off this freeway and take at least five or six other fairly good routes. I feel like I sit in my sister's fucking minivan to take, (laughs) you know, her kids 20 minutes. She says it's going to take 20 minutes. And all of a sudden we're in the Blair Witch Project. And I'm like, what is happening? We are in the middle of the woods. There is nothing but woods and like two lanes. And she's like, this is the only way to get to Bingham or Hanover Binghamshire or whatever the fuck it's called. And I'm like, that's the only way. (laughs) This is the only way humans. This 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 state has been here since the beginning. And y'all have this one road there and she See, goes the, yeah the thing that yeah, you don't the thing is. that you don't get about uh boston is we still have the same roads from the boston massacre era where you could just still yeah. operate horse your paths. horse and buggy down the road instead of your car yeah 
And it's just as narrow yep. as it was then now. So trying to get down streets, you're most likely going to be in a collision yeah. with someone who has no idea where they so are. So there's sure. like what you're so saying great. is the Boston massacre continues daily on the roads. Every day. <laughs> yeah, Boston. every day. Every just, day. So my research yes. led me wrong on you two. I thought I was discussing the Boston massacre with a single Bostonian, but here I am. Talking the Boston massacre to two Bostonians. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm a little, I'm, 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 I'm clenched. I'm a little clenched. I feel like the pressure's on. I should have smoked more weed. I would have loosened. No, up. it's okay. We'll just get you drunk before we go in. <laughs> well, this is awesome, man, Dave and Sarah. Uh, the question, right? What is going to be your history subject? And y'all dangle your toes over you know, history stuff all the time. And Dave said, Sarah really wants to do the Boston massacre. <laughs> and so now is my chance to ask you, Sarah, why? Why was this the one you picked for us? So geographically, you know, we we learned about it in school and all well and good. However, as you, you know, you get older and you get a little bit more curious as to like the truth behind it and the truth of what's going on, you're like, oh, this public school lied mm -hmm. to me. Like, where, where's the funding? You're like, let's get some better books. But not just that, um, but also it's it kind of portrays how it is in Massachusetts. You know, it's a like kind of fuck around and find out situation yeah. where, you know, we are always, you, you know, we don't want you there. We're going to throw snowballs at you. We don't want you there. We're going to throw rocks at you. So it's one of those that it does uh, portray the tried and true Bostonian today. So I was like, this is a great oh. segue for oh us. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you picked it. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you about my town. Here are some of the sources that will supply uh, what is coming down the pike. This book was my first source. It's called The Boston Massacre, A Family History by the author Serena Zabin. And one of the things that makes this uh, history account unique is that she focuses on the families and lives around both the perpetrators and the victims. She discusses how the British regiments came from Britain often with their families, their wives and their kids, came on the ships, lived in the barracks, were responsible for cleaning and mending and taking care of the soldiers. And they were sort of, depending on the perspective, they were a burden, one more mouth to feed, or they were a great service. They actually provided stuff that we didn't have to hire anybody for. And the number of British soldiers who married American women and ha were deeply like intertwined in the colonies like from the beginning. So like, wow, <laughs> was that right. kind of kinky. And then look, I got to back up to get this book into frame. It's one of very exciting yeah. one. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, wow. it's hardcover, girl. This is called Reporting the Revolutionary War, and it is sort of like, remember microfiche <laughs> when we were little? <laughs> and you had to go with the thing, and like if you watch a crime drama from the yep. 90s, they still will have like, you know, Ro uh, Julia Roberts doing some shit with the microfiche. Right. It is the actual newspaper reports from the newspapers published the week wow. of. So this guy got as many existing contemporary reporting 
in and around the major events of the Revolutionary War and printed and transcribes them into this book, meaning you can read the sort of daily, weekly mail. You can see how a particular publication changes its mind, kind of like they do now, you know, in the editorial page. Mm -hmm. It was really, it's wild. That was incredibly illuminating. There is, of course, innumerable documentaries. I really liked one on the History Channel called The American Rebellion Brews in Boston. There's several episodes, but that first episode just really kind of gets into (laughs) what you were saying, Sarah. Like, why are these cunts so prone to getting snowballs all of a sudden? Like, why is that their thing? Um, I did watch the miniseries on HBO of the biography that I had already read (laughs) years ago. Um, the John Adams miniseries on HBO with John, uh, uh, with mm-hmm. Paul Giamatti playing John Adams. Gorgeous. Laura Linney plays Abigail. Oh, she's, she's so, so phenomenal. Good, right? God. I was like, I'm going to marry yes, you. Like, God. Like, yes. And amazing. like, can we not, Sarah, you and I have like a double feature night where we watch like episode of John Adams, episode of Ozark episode of John Adams episode oh, oh, right like me powerful out. wife there. who is here for you <laughs> sometimes it's good and we'll yes. call it like peanut butter and jelly you know like Laura Linney and our little like mm, yummy wives sandwich okay see Dave this you is can exactly, watch we'll zoom you in Dave <laughs> yeah this is this is exactly yeah. how I pictured this this episode to go today I you know Don I I really love your show it's great Thank you. but this I reached out to you to do this episode more for Sarah. This is like her Christmas gift. I am just I am the person sitting in the cuck chair watching oh. the two of you scissor history. Ooh, kinky, kinky. Yeah. This, this is I, I knew exactly how this was going to be, and I'm. If you don't hear my voice a lot, I didn't fall asleep. I'm I'm paying attention. I just knew yeah. exactly how this is going to be. I'm so glad you're being you, a voyeur. You right? honestly. <laughs> You don't need me here. I'm I'm just on the side. Oh, I'm in that we, I'm in the cuck chair. It's cool. Oh, listen, everybody needs a towel boy in a good orgy. Yes. Like, don't you dare leave the room. You are nervous. No, no, no. I'm You'll, not leaving. I'm well, watching. Trust well, me. Yeah, okay, good. We'll throw you a courtesy hand job at some point. <laughs> you know, I should he's absolutely right though. Like Sarah's wearing like um a, a, an ironic history t shirt of like Titanic swim team, which I love. Nope. I'm wearing uh I tend to get historical t-shirt get it play on hysteria oh boy Uh oh wilds get the lotion in the water everybody get hydrated and if you get hot for sources there's more i mean i usually read a book from you guys know you've heard the show i usually Mm -hmm. read at least one book watch a documentary or two sister there was also a three-part podcast series called benjamin franklin's world Oh, that's a, a wild world. Uh, Benjamin Where the hell do you find world? all this time? I know. Do I don't. Well, I do it while. I do it while. I'm kind oh, of. I wow. do it while. You know. Uh, but this this Benjamin Franklin's world. This lady. She runs. She talks to historians from all over the place. It's remarkable. They get into fact and fiction. They get into before and after victims and perpetrators. It's hot. Um. So here's what I've done with all of that. In addition to get to getting thoroughly turned on. And then assembling a menage a trois. <laughs> um, here, here's my plan for us going in. Okay, I'm my goal, my intent is to get the three of us just really fully immersed in Boston 1770. How grateful I am that you two are already 
very familiar with Boston today. <laughs> there for a while. So to go back to 1770, because as we said, it is more colorful and it is more complicated than I remember. And usually for those of us who sort of are trying to harken back Boston Massacre, okay, getting an image, the image, if you have one, if you haven't seen John Adams' documentary <laughs> series on HBO, um, is that engraving, the, the image, the, the one that was in all of our textbooks that is, that is usually attached, you know, to the title. And it's the one, if you can't see it, it's, it's the good guys are in blue. They are bleeding. They are being victimized. We have the bad guys in red. They're sort of leaning into their bayonets while they're firing and their faces are very obviously like, oh, we fucking love killing these guys. <laughs> <laughs> and there's and there's like a little dog and it's sort of like this is and then you see that image and you read the paragraph or two about the massacre that says that was the beginning of the fight and then we fought and then we won and now we're america and america the was end. is yeah. and will always be perfect yeah. yes check check and um we did it so so we're gonna try and what i think we're gonna have a, we're gonna play a little trivia i'm gonna give you guys trivia questions along oh the way dave so oh, not oh, only will oof. you be brought into this dave you got to wow. compete. I know. Oh, Stretch, man. limber up. <laughs> oh, I know. Um, but listen, before all that, let's, let's color in the lines here with a story. Mm. <laughs> On October 15th in 1768 in Farmington, do you guys know you place yourself in Farmington? Do you know where that is in relationship to Boston? Uh, I yes. do. It's about... Right. Uh, a two-hour drive from here, maybe, uh, maybe about uh, well, two and a half. Two and a half. Two and a half. All right, so a distance, certainly before cars. It'd be a nice yeah. distance yeah. outside of town, right? And there's this guy named Richard Ames, and he's working in a cornfield in Farmington. And this guy was born in England, and he came to America earlier that year with the 14th Regiment, and then he fucking deserted. <laughs> He was like, this is for the fucking bird. And he yeah. took off. And, and he wasn't the only one. There were so many desertions in that 17 months that the, that the British soldiers were first coming over and sort of assembling troops. So many guys like Richard Ames were like, fuck no. And they bolted. And it was really easy to desert. In fact, on the day that this guy deserted, 20 other guys <laughs> deserted. It wasn't like an organized thing. <laughs> we're all, we're done. And it was really easy. And one of the reasons it was easy to desert is because they were housed all over hell. They were all over Boston. They they didn't have the centralized military barracks where all of the British soldiers were going to be staying. When they got to Boston, it was like a few in this farmhouse, a few in that barracks, some out of town. So they were really dispersed. And so it was pretty easy to just wander off, right? This is also peacetime. They're technically here as peacekeepers. They're not here to fight. So this isn't like organized military barracks sharpening their weapons and making sure everyone's got the strategy for the day they're just hanging out a lot smoking mob bros drinking bud lights <laughs> yeah and it also sucked right being a british soldier was the worst your your officers treated you like trash there were regular beatings and then the people hate you too because nobody likes a peacekeeper why are you here why are you pointing that gun at me i hate your guts so yeah the other thing was if you were a British soldier who had lived in London and you were poor and treated like garbage and you step off the boat in Boston and look around at the life of colonial America, you're like, well, this is heaven. This is look right. at all the clean water and clean air and space and grass. What is this green, delicious stuff growing out of the ground? My God, are these 
You know what I'm talking about? Are those blue skies? This is amazing. <laughs> and then the one that really sealed the deal, Sarah, you can attest, is the women. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Ladies. They're crazy. But, uh, yeah, they'll rip your dick off. They, but you'll they, they're crazy, but they're down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you'll love every minute of Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So our guy, Richard Ames, is standing in this cornfield in Farmington on a crisp October morning probably just patting himself on the back like god damn did i nail this one right and then he sees old farmer ames which is crazy they have the same last name history cannot confirm or deny that they were actually related but that's crazy right farmer ames is walking across the field and he's got these two guys with him and he comes up to richard and is like check it out two more deserters <laughs> do you know him he's like i don't know him but they're like up high am i right guys this is the best thing <laughs> the best thing we've ever done and these two guys are like honestly yeah, and then farmer ames is like fucking hey let's go get some cider and take a break that, and that's like, the most new england thing to say though be like hey these guys are from england you know these fucking dudes over here like, like oh yeah <laughs> you know uh, five, five. yeah Up and they're all just like fucking a this is the best day ever and now we're gonna go toast our, to our great decisions with this farmer and his cider amen and they get into the farmer's house and they sit they cheers with the cider and then these two guys pull pistols oh fuck oh. they're deserter hunters oh. shit and they had pretended to be deserters oh. and were hot on the trail trying to track down all these guys and they caught Richard and they take him into custody and they drag his ass back to Boston. And all of the, you know, the powers that be are like, yeah, we got to come down on this guy. He's court-martialed, found guilty, and sentenced to execution by firing squad. Yikes. And not just firing squad, firing squad of his own unit. The 14th that he defected from, they're going to be the ones that are going to do the shooting. And and the colonials, are, are they've seen, by the way, already lashings that killed a guy. Uh, this It peeled his back. It destroyed his body and he died. They saw other ones. And, they, and even the colonials were like, um, <laughs> the Bible says that 40 is sufficient. I just feel like maybe we could stop <laughs> at 40 lashes, you know? <laughs> And, and back then, I mean, you would die from a stub toe, too. Word. So, right. Yeah. But these guys, like, no, there's too many, too many desertions. We've got to make an example of this guy. And despite the protests and letters and just please take it easy on this guy, they shoot him dead and then march three times around his body. Like, take a look, guys. Hmm. Here is the reason I oh. tell the story at the very top. One, to point out, as the author of this book does so beautifully, that our fight was not with the redcoats. Our fight was with the redcoat itself. We could and often did separate the men from their uniforms. That's why we're fucking marrying them and taking them in as deserters. And there are tons of examples of British soldiers Again, they're only there for 17 months, and they are godfathers to colonial babies. They are going into business with people. Like, at that moment, we're all English, and we're all subjects of the king, and we don't exactly know kind of what's happening. A lot of these lines are yet, you know what I mean, to be drawn. But when we saw the brutality of the king on his own subjects, not just his own subjects, but the brutality of the king on his own soldiers, it further reinforced why would we want to be subjects of this king? How is right. this 
a great pitch yeah. for mm-hmm. join up. Right. Um, so I feel like this understanding of the execution of Richard Ames in 1768, which is two years before the Boston massacre, gives us some of that important like color that we were talking about. Right. right. Um, it also brings us to our first question. Oh, oh. I know. Oh, now, some of these oh. questions I will be directing to one or the other of you. In this case, you both answer and whoever gets the closest will get the point. Okay. The city of Salem, Massachusetts, and Boston are only 25 miles apart, and they are, of course, both sites of a dark chapter in American history. But how many years separate the Salem witch trials from the Boston Massacre? How many years? Ah, shit. It's like a hundred... Ooh... It's probably about like a, I want to say it's like 110. Okay, Sarah says 110 years. Whoever gets closest wins. Dave, what do you think? I feel like it's lower. I want to say like it's in the 40s, 40 years-ish. Dave, you win this one. It is 70 years prior. I I try to avoid Salem at all costs anyway. So, I mean, all I know is they have a... Yeah, they have a bewitched statue that everybody just takes pictures. Well, of. it's it's Elizabeth Montgomery. Let's call yeah. it a day. It says, you know, but... and this is one of the cool things about knowing that context. Be like, okay, the Salem witch trials were about mm-hmm. as far away from the events in Boston during the Boston Massacre as you and I are from the World War II. Oh yeah. Oh, that's a good yeah. Also, to give you an indication of how many generations of people have been Americans still associated themselves, of course, as subjects of the king, but have occupied this space and raised children and generations. And our graveyards have generations of families now buried in them, you know, out, out on that hill. Right. Um, so, yeah. so more to our context is the Seven Years' War. This happened seven years prior to the Boston Massacre, and I think is super duper important to understand why the Boston Massacre happened and... <laughs> Why Bostonians still love throwing rocks and snowballs at people who piss them off. And it's basically the last fight for who gets to own the colonies, France or England, right? And Native American tribes aligned with various powers and colonial Americans, for the most part, aligned with England and fought together. And that means you got dudes like George Washington, who was carrying an English gun and wearing English boots and fighting along these English guys against France Most of the Sons of Liberty held an English gun and fought under the English flag next to an English guy seven years ago. Not just generation, like this was really, really recent, right? And at the end of the Seven Years' War, England is so fucking exhausted, fucking finally got America. Phew. And they are beyond broke. (laughs) They're so broke. (laughs) They don't have any money. And they don't have any more dudes. They They have... you know, scraped the bottom of the barrel for guys, as they are saying themselves. We just have the worst dudes in the army right now. We are completely out of money. Our ships suck. This is just the worst. And what we have to do now, the primo first job, is to tax these motherfuckers and make up for some of the money that we just bled out to keep them colonies English, right? And the colonists were like, no. <laughs> nah, dude. Yeah. Nah, dude. We're good. Nah. 
We no. didn't. No. I mean, there were so many. Generally, the thrust of it was just nah, nah. And they'd be like, but we just fought to keep you. And we were like, no, we didn't see it like that. <laughs> that's, it, it's more like, mm, that's classic. nice. However, and like, that's, you know. Yeah, classic Boston. Um, we didn't like, yeah. we did, oh, we both good. didn't like the French. Yeah. That I didn't ask you to, to fucking me, do this yeah. for me. I don't give a shit. Yeah. Go fucking do yeah. your own thing. Yeah. 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 Send me an invoice. Yeah. I'll take a yeah. look. I mean, it was, yeah. and also exactly right, Dave. <laughs> that was really how they did it. There, there was an immediate nah, and that was about as violent as it was. It was just nah, and the the form of the nah was smuggling, which is the technique. You know what I mean? They they were yeah. just saying no, we're not going to do it, and we're just not. And so they'd be like, all oh, right. So every time you use a piece of paper you give us uh, five cents, right? And and we just wouldn't. Nah. Just didn't. Nah, just I'm good. Didn't send yeah. it. Right, right on my hands. Yeah. Yeah. Or they'd go yeah. like this. This is my favorite. The way that I used to disobey my mom is I'd go, okie doke, and then not do it. It's just the difference. The, the, <laughs> the action is the same, but the, but the answer was some variety between nah and all right. But either way, they weren't getting them taxes. And every time the ledger came in, they were like, son of a bitch, this doesn't line up. We sent this much. We got this much. There's no way. So to enforce, the first thing they do, of course, is send, they're like, perhaps they're just not very good at math. <laughs> Maths, idiots. So then they send, <laughs> right? Uh, and they send a bunch of guys thinking maybe the problem is we ain't doing the math. <laughs> yeah, math, math, math is hard. Is hard yeah. Math is and hard. And they send up buildings. It's like, really we'll hard. do buildings in this math. And you know what? Don't worry. We'll do the math for you so you guys don't have to do the math. That's so hard for you. And then they were like, yeah, no, it really seems like they are deliberately not paying these taxes. That's so weird. Then we get into rough scuffles. Just it, fuck you, all right. Yeah. Not nah goes to fuck nah, you know. And the fuck out of here, dude. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so in 1768, they send troops, lots of them, to Boston specifically. This is a Boston thing. This is an American thing. When the enforcer arrives to just keep an eye on things, all of us want to throw something at that person. Absolutely. We won't like, yes. nobody likes it. Yes. My daughter is five and they have a substitute teacher and she's like, fuck this. No, you're not my teacher. You're, I mean, it, it was just yesterday. I was like, how's the substitute? And she was like, I don't know. Cause I don't do that. That's not my teacher. And she doesn't make the rules. And I was like, Oh no. You know? I don't know. She got an eraser off the head today. <laughs> you know? so i threw yeah and she didn't duck no. and that was on her because you know i wound up she could see it coming um <laughs> so yeah the troop the troops come and that just gets everybody real uptight okay so where we come into our story the boston massacre here we are at the beginning of 1770 it's been two years give or take a year and a half since the execution of richard ames so more troops are coming we don't like you we don't like the way you treat your troops we don't like the way your troops treat us. And if you are a private, a sentry, a red coat that is supposed to stand guard on shit in Boston, this is the shittiest job, you guys. Because the way the power structure works, it's so fucked. Everyone's trying to simultaneously start a war and prevent a war that we have these moments where there's this, this eerie 
in action while all of this stuff builds. So if you're wearing a red coat and you're standing guard somewhere in Boston and a Bostonian walks by and goes, hey, you ugly fuck, we hate that you're here. And you're thinking, God, I want to smack this guy with my gun, big time. <laughs> you obviously can't. You ask an officer. You say, hey, officer, these fucks are scaring me and they're being really mean to me. Can I hit them, please, with the butt of my gun? And then your officer says, hang on, let me ask the commander, right? So the <laughs> officer then goes to <laughs> Gates, right, and says, hey, Gates out there on your ship overseeing everything, they're being mean and we'd really like to start hitting them with our butt of our gun. What do you think? And he says, we, you know, we can't do anything unless the local magistrate gives us leave to do it. So we have to check in with him. So they check in with the local magistrate who technically works for the king but is elected by the people of Boston. So he can't. <laughs> anyway, he's got two Ooh. bosses and he just goes, I would really rather you didn't. And at the end of enough of these chains of command and everybody seeing how long this chain of command in and how at the end it always leads to inactivity emboldens otherwise weak and ineffectual individuals to just go for these redcoats because they know they can't do anything about it. There is no recourse for them and they can just sort of express themselves and they are starting to do that. And it had already come a month before the Boston massacre, an 11 year old boy fucked around and found out while protesting at the home of a loyalist. His name is Christopher Sider, and he's murdered. He's beaten and dies from his injuries. And that was already one that people were starting that got heart rates up, that got people clenching their fists and like raising sticks a little higher. So on the evening of March 5th, <laughs> 1770, <laughs> <laughs> this is 11 days after the funeral of that 11 year old boy. So he and, and thousands of people came out to the funeral of this 11 year old boy. And so tensions are high. This private Hugh White is stationed outside the Boston Custom House where they do the math and collect the taxes inside. And so this is this is the place that's like if you're going to pick a place that really makes you mad, that's the building, right? It's on King Street near the water. And while he's on guard. He sees a 13-year-old boy named Edward Garrick kind of word, having words with this British officer named Goldfinch. He's basically saying you, he's a wig. He's like, you didn't pay your bill, you fucking British fuck kind of deal, right? And Goldfinch, and they're getting at it. And Hugh, Private Hugh White approaches them and says, you, son, shouldn't be talking like that. And they get into a fight. And then Hugh White hits our guy Garrick, the 13-year-old boy, in the head with the butt of his gun. Which you and we've all established. <laughs> and so he does kind of hit the kid, fuck, and then goes back to his post, like, fuck. Sorry. Oh, dear. Yes. I believe I hit that chap with the butt of me gun. Yeah. Ew. I hope nobody noticed, right? Oh, fuck. And I like. Don't be suspicious. Don't yeah. be yeah. suspicious. Don't cry. Don't cry. Don't cry. Don't, don't cry. be suspicious. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and but it is i picture this moment especially after reading all of these various accounts like from both sides i picture this moment like a zombie movie where like it's late at night it's kind of cold and everyone just sort of like a whiff of brains has come into the graveyard and all of the various individuals awake at the time are like mm. 
fight. <laughs> right? Which again, as, as residents of Boston, I think you know that smell, that moment when people just start to go, I want to punch somebody. Yes. Where is it? <laughs> and they start to move. And it is, it's slow by all accounts. They start to just gather around Private Hugh White with like, you fucking hit that kid. He hit me. Did he shoot the kid? And we're starting to get mad. And enough of a crowd is gathering that Hugh White is like, I'm so scared. And he calls for reinforcements. And you get Captain Thomas Preston comes in with a bunch of other soldiers. They're ultimately make a horseshoe kind of semicircle shape guarding the custom house with their bayonets aimed out at this growing crowd that's just getting madder and madder. Again, we do not know. History cannot confirm exactly how many people were there, where exactly everybody was, but everyone agrees that at one point, church bells started ringing. And if church bells start ringing oh. when it ain't church time, that typically means, get out here, there's a problem. And usually that means get out here, shit's, shit's going, going down. down. And usually it's a fire. Yep. And it's so often the shit that's going down is a fire that like people are going to like get water and then they're like, there's no fire, but they keep hearing the word fire, the word fire, fire to the point where people are thinking there is one, you know, what we know is at some point private Montgomery is hit by something, a club, a rock. It's hard enough in his head that he falls to the ground and drops his rifle. Some people said it went off when he dropped it. Some people say he stood up with it and said, fire, fire, goddamn it, fire, and started firing himself. Probably because if you just got hit with the head and then you're on your belly, there becomes a certain fight or flight <laughs> reflex, right? Right. At yeah. that point, mm -hmm. bang, yeah. bang, 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 bang the shots ring out. And here is my second question. And this one is to you, Sarah, since Dave has already gotten one point, and I know you're eager <laughs> to get on the board. <laughs> True or false? Ugh. All of the people who died in the Boston massacre were shot. Ooh. Uh, that's a false. Is that false? Oh, Ooh, unfortunately, it is true. They were all shot. shot. Oh, God oh damn. That, that doesn't mean Dave got a point, though. At least you didn't give him anything. I would have said false as well, because when fights break out in Boston, most of the time, <laughs> Bostonians hit other Bostonians just for shits and giggles. Just, you know? just for shits yeah. and giggles. Yeah. May as well right. add my just blood to the mix. Are we yeah, making Yeah, you could be right. fighting the British, but you know what? At one point, I'm going to hit my best friend just because why not? <laughs> it's the, he probably did something in third grade. Has it come? Yeah. At the end, you go to the bar and, and you have yourself some beer and you'll be like, ah, fuck, man, I'm sorry I hit you. I, I was just sorry, really I'll do it again, though, probably. Yeah. Yeah, you get me next time yeah, we do yeah. a, a, one of these meet and greets at the at the, uh, the old colony house there. Yeah. You know? I'll give you a second. I'll turn my back. You go ahead yeah. and take one. I'll expect it. Um, yeah. No, they were all shot, and I was really shocked by that, too. Yeah. Um, the only way, reason I sort of led you for, like, why false is because one of the guys who died um, – it was a ricochet. So he was he wasn't shot directly, but he did die from a bullet wound um, from a from a ricocheted bullet. But, yeah, they were they were all shot. Uh. And here are here are the victims and how they 
how they died from what we know. We had a rope maker named Samuel Gray, hot. We had a mariner named James Caldwell, hotter. Uh, we had a previously enslaved man named Crispus Attucks. We will talk a lot more about him a little bit later on. Um, a 17-year-old boy named Samuel Maverick. He's the one who died the next day because it was a ricocheting bullet that hit him. He was in the back, <sighs> poor bastard. Um, and then oh. an Irish immigrant named Patrick Carr. And he dies two weeks later from his bullet wounds. But that's five dead. Five the wow. Boston massacre, the massacre had five dead. I don't want to say that Americans are overachievers, but our massacres got way better after oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you can imagine how once those bullets start flying, I mean, granted, they don't have automatic rifles, but there is a moment where there's like the bullets stop firing. The colonials are not armed, of course. And there's just that eerie. <sighs> Like what happens now? There's people dead and dying. There's people screaming. Yeah. The the soldiers are bleeding. Many of them from the shit that was hitting them in the face, but they're holding ranks and they are in that line and their guns are still drawn and everyone's just fucking staring at each other. What the fuck? Eventually the acting governor, Thomas Hutchinson gets down there. They disperse. The crowd starts to disperse. This cunt gets on a balcony like Avita. <laughs> And, and he's still English, right? So he's like, right, right, everyone, that was so unfortunate. Please go home. Um, and there's a lot of argument. And finally, the crowd is like, not until this, not until that. And he eventually says, all right, look, those eight guys who are standing here who fired, we've arrested them. And the captain, they're under arrest. They are in jail. We will put them on trial for murder. And the rest of these soldiers who are currently in Boston are going to go out there to Castle Island for a little while until everybody calms the fuck down. All right. So cool. we're going to mourn the dead. We're going to tend to the injured. Everybody just go on home. Okay. And they do. I, I love the way you explain that when after the shots were fired, everyone's just standing there looking at each other. I could just picture it. That, that's why I was over here laughing because you just picture it like in a movie where the shots yeah. are fired. There's people on the ground. Everyone's just staring at each other. And then all of a sudden this, this fight song breaks out and all hell breaks loose. Yeah. You know? right. <laughs> well, and you gotta know too, this is one of those moments, man. If we could get into a time machine, that moment is the one on which a lot of this shit actually turned. Right. Because right. the crowd could have beaten those guys to death probably before anything anyone else yeah. came like well back then it took forever to reload your weapon anyways right and so, the court I mean, documents revealed they didn't reload they no right. no soldiers shot more than once um but yeah there it wasn't like the custom house was full of more soldiers it's not clear that anyone would have gotten the order to go down there and start killing the people who had taken the custom house. Like this could have been yet another crazy chapter, but yeah, in those deep breaths, Dave, there was an opportunity for people to go stop. Like we have to go home tonight. <laughs> Let's uh, an already sort of leaning on a justice system that is very complicated. Right. And it is the, the system mm. that we're going to get into when we come back for part two. 
This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. In a world where podcasts have become bland and stale, one podcast dares to stand above. Barrel Age Flicks Podcast. We're reviewing drinks, breaking down movies, busting each other's balls, and we're big in Hong Kong. Barrel Age Flicks Season 4. It's in the bottle. Yeah, yo. Available on Spotify, Apple Music, Audible, iHeartRadio, TikTok, YouTube, Patreon, and OnlyFans. I know a massacre isn't supposed to be this much fun, but can you blame us? And we all just poured ourselves a drink, too, so <laughs> buckle up. And, and, you know, as long as I'm holding a glass, a toast to my latest patrons, Megan B. and Marcus A. Oh, I am so grateful to them, and you should be, too, because these sluts, all right, along with my other fabulous patrons, you know who you are, hi, <laughs> uh, not only help keep the podcast cooking, but prevent me from having to schlep boner pills and home security systems to you between hilfing, right? And if you want to help, but like not with money, I get it, uh, we are at Hilf Podcast everywhere, all right? You can give us a huge shot in the arm by subscribing, reviewing, you know, sharing your favorite episode, and of course, when you... I'm gonna cut you. I'm gonna cut you and gut you and frickin'. We're gonna have a good old fancy time. Oh. Now I'm drinking, so. I was hoping, yeah. I know. It's like, it's always ch- difficult when you've got these various um, time zones to be like, I hope you understand that I do drink early in the morning, but it's for you so that we all feel like we're in the same place. What have you got? Oh, what are we, what are we enjoying? Drinking. Yeah, I, I, I've been you on a seltzer, a seltzer? kit. I know oh. that's what everybody says. Hike up to your me. skirt, little lady. Oh. Jesus. Yeah. Even Fuck. what is wrong with you? Change your tampon. Come on. Yeah. Let him. It's 2023. <laughs> I can drink whatever I want. Um. Okay. I can identify as a cucumber if I need to. Especially for the two of you. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> you are you are a favorite cucumber, Dave. <laughs> We are back. We are even less clothed. We are um, a little more intoxicated. <laughs> and our guys, where we left our guys, man, between March 5th, the shooting itself, and October of 1770, where we find them now, these nine guys have just been sitting in jail. And one of the things that they are particularly terrified of is getting lynched. Thomas Preston, the captain in particular, is his letters are adamant that he's pretty much figures every day is his last. Um, these guys are going to get in here eventually. They're going to drag him out. One of the guards is going to get bribed, and it has happened before. And Thomas Preston is Irish. <laughs> so the only thing that Bostonians know better than Boston is being Irish and just being like, I don't know what's going to take over first, them being Irish or them being Bostonian, but they're going to fucking yeah, true. kill me in here, right? True. Um, and now it's time to talk about that engraving. Okay, so we talked at the beginning about how that's like the image that we all have. You do you guys can oh, yeah. picture in your mind, right? Oh, yeah. The the image I'm talking about. Yes, you see it. Per, bam! Right for anybody in the colonies at that time, certainly by October, they done seen 
that engraving. For those of you who maybe can't picture it perfectly, you've got your line of red-coated soldiers, right, in them bayonets. You've got the victims, the bleeding, you know, uh, Bostonians. In the backdrop is a huge church, right, indicating these are saintly, godly people of Boston that were killed in front of, you know, their own church. There's a cute little helpless dog. It's not dead, <laughs> but it's in the foreground. I don't know why the dog is there. Just and it's, yeah, and it's vivid. Now, here is my question. Sarah, as you have zero. <laughs> ah, Jesus. I know there is. Oh, my God. Oh. And you know what? This one, I'm going to ask you, Sarah, but if you get it wrong, I will give Dave a chance to steal this point. It seems only fair. Here's the question about that engraving that we all know so well. Sarah, who made it? Oh, f wow. fuck. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. Who's the artiste? Oh, my. F yeah, I can hear my art history teacher now being like, really, bitch? Oh, you know, you think this is hard? Uh, Wait until you listen to the episode. That's this. You're twisting on oh, yeah. the line right now, but the future you is screaming it <laughs> in your ear right now. That's what are you doing, you idiot? Sarah, don't do this. Oh my God. Not in front of Dawn. Not in front of Dawn. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> uh, I need to drink more. It helps me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to pass. <gasps> Don't be Googling it. I've seen I'm, Google. I'm what are you, you Google Google your phone? Girl, are you I'm Googling my it? my mother-in-law. Hmm. Oh, well, that's, I don't know. Mm. Because yeah. she was there <laughs> yes. that night? Mm. She's she's picking up my daughter, <laughs> and, and she's thumbs up emojiing me. She's just like, yes. She's like, okay, she's like we're on we're on our okay, way home. Okay, there's the I'm proof. Like, All right. Okay, All right. I'm still recording, and she's just like, boop. That's good. I didn't think she knew how to do something like that. That's nice. I feel like Pornhub and mother-in-laws are the only... Green yeah, light, cell phone use. I, I would never recording. use my phone yeah. during okay. yes. a cuck session. I'm very sorry. Yes. <laughs> okay. We appreciate you. Um, so who, she's given it to you. Dave, do you know who made uh, the famous engraving of the Boston Massacre? I want to say it's, it's got to be somebody just ridiculous and like well-known in history, like a... <laughs> A Sam Adams or uh, even a Paul Revere. Um, I mean, Paul Revere made a lot of weird shit, but I don't think he was a painter. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Sam Adams makes beer. Um, <laughs> this is fun. Watching yeah. the insides of your uh, mind. It's like a striptease. It's like a mental striptease watching yeah. you slowly take I, off the layers. It's an etching, so Didn't it was printed in the paper. Didn't he invent the spoon? And it was like printed. You know what? Fuck it. I'm going with Paul Revere. Dave, I'm gonna give oh. you a point for that one, Dave, because it is Paul. The, the, it's oh. sort of a trick question. Because buckle up for this one. You're right that that famous engraving that we all had in our textbooks was in, was made by Paul Revere. Ding, ding, ding. However. Paul Revere fucking stole ah, it. Ah, true Revere. <laughs> from honest to God, from total Revere this, I got, the guy was named Henry Pelham. He was also a printer in Boston. Look were, you, were you going to say yeah, Sarah, Sarah, a big Henry Pelham it? fan. Big, she has no. all Henry Pelham's paintings no. in her fucking the, house. Now that, you, 
now that yeah. you said Pelham, yeah. now mm-hmm. that you said Pelham, mm-hmm. I'm like, that's yeah. the fucking name. No. That's the name. There. Because it's a big, it's a big, like, Ipswich Wenham name. Head. Pelham. And they have Sarah everything has all named after Pelham's, him. Sarah has all older works hanging in her her house older the older work yeah. you know you'll never forget now sarah here's my theory yeah. i really believe never that my guests and or listeners oh. will someday win millions of dollars on some sort of who wants to be a millionaire trivia show and i like to think that i'm part of that you will never forget henry pelham again and here's i will never and here's what's great what's nuts is that it was like a drama and just sort of like shyster fuckery because henry pelham made that engraving guys if you put henry pelham's engraving Next to Paul Revere's, he made only a few small changes and put it to print and got the jump on Henry to the point where Henry like wrote him a letter that you can read that I have read because I'm a that was like, buddy, (laughs) fuck you. I'm paraphrasing. To whom it may concern, <laughs> go with and fuck yourself. Right? Something like that. He did. He was yeah. like, this is a profession. He was like, yeah. I made that work. I gave it to a guy to have printed, and he gave it to you, and you stole it. What was Paul Revere's little change? Was it the adding of the dog? Oh, there's a few. I'm so, oh, Dave, I'm so glad. Listen, Paul if I'm like, reaching I'm going across, to I'm bringing a little puppy dog here. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm taking you off your voyeur chair, and I'm bringing you into the sack with us here, Dave. He kept the dog. I'm telling you, the dog was Henry's. Okay, here... But the changes that Paul made were slight. Like, if you just glanced at him, you wouldn't know they were two different things. Like, he straight up stole this thing, okay? But he did make some changes. Um, And they're interesting. One is the moon. There's, like, a crescent moon in the sky. And in Pelham's, it's facing to the right. And in Revere's, it's facing to the left. Um, The church in the background has eight eight columns in the cupola, and Revere's only has seven. Um, There's a smoking chimney on on Pelham's that doesn't show up on Revere's. But the most, like, significant difference is that Pelham included under the engraving uh, a quote from Psalms, that is generally the gist of it is, oh God, the injustice. Oh God, avenge us. Oh God, we have been wronged. Our blood runs in the street. And it's taken from Psalms. Revere doesn't use the Bible verse. He writes his own poem about injustice and blood in the streets. And he names names like Thomas Preston, the faithless Thomas Preston shot upon us on King Street. So this isn't like... (laughs) hearkening to a biblical verse like he's making it specific so it is what paul revere does to that engraving makes it more insidious may and he and he calls it the massacre in boston the bloody massacre is the title of it right and that and but that's not all it goes with words because at this same time keep in mind all while these engravings that engraving henry pelham made he made on the night of march 5th fucking paul revere stole it like the next day, two days later. I mean, this shit is fucking like we are talking 250 years ago, but the media machine is doing what the media machine do. And it is getting ahead of this. It is spinning this. It is labeling this. No one quote unquote significant fired on these men, right? No one quote unquote significant died. So the shooting itself, it's like, it's like everyone's trying to sort of lift up what it was symbolically, like from, you know, the very beginning. (laughs) And in addition to this image, there are pamphlets, 
pamphlets. Can we get hot for pamphlets? We're going to try. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, that trifold. Yeah. Mm, pamphlets. I mean, hear like, ye, here, hear as ye. an. <laughs> I didn't pay my taxes for this paper, so fuck it, them. (laughs) Yeah, I wrote it on a free piece of bark, you know, imperialist shits. Um, Yeah, and we still, you know, I mean, 2023, man, we're still dropping pamphlets on places when we're in a bind. Like, it's just what people do to fucking get the word out immediately, presuming a certain amount of literacy, presuming that even if everyone can't read this, someone's going to read it to them, that this is the fastest way to spread I love how history (laughs) just never changes. It it never Never, changes. Like, let's drop pamphlets. It's 2023. We're still dropping pamphlets. Pamphlets, yeah. yeah. Hear ye, hear ye. It's just like heads up. It's ridiculous. And these, and same to your point, Dave, it's not just their pamphlets. This on opposite sides, the pamphlet that the Sons of Liberty put out is titled A Short Narrative of the Horrid Massacre in Boston Perpetrated in the Evening of the Fifth Day of March, 1770 by Soldiers of the 29th Regiment. And it includes Paul Revere's engraving with it. Okay, that's a snappy title. Snappy, yeah. horrid, Rolls, horrid, Rolls horrid, right massacre, yeah. Yeah. horrid. And, right? it's, yeah. and it says the first word: a short narrative. This shit is long as fuck, <laughs> and much longer than the other pamphlet that is published at the same time by the British and the Loyalists, who titled their pamphlet "A Fair Account of the Late Unhappy Disturbance." <laughs> 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 I swear to Jesus, and there are no pictures. To be fair, a fair account. If they literally almost say fair and balanced. Um, so these two pamphlets obviously take very different paths. Obviously, they're explaining what had happened out there in front of that custom house with entirely different perspectives. Sarah, this question is to you. Oh, geez. I have to. I'm throwing your bones right. here, girl. I Dave and I are half yeah, naked. You're you're still getting your socks off, sister. I'm tickling my own it's, feet with this feather. Sorry, it's cold. Some <laughs> cold. It's cold. <laughs> yeah. It's like, can I just turn one light on? Who's in the chair um, now, Sarah? Okay. <laughs> That's fine. I'm tired. <laughs> I need to hydrate real quick. Hold on. It's this wheat. All right. So here is the question. These pamphlets, both of them, were printed in Boston, but were most widely read and distributed somewhere else. Where? Uh, I'm going to say England. Uh, that's what I'm gonna go. Ding, 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 ding. Yay! Let me take them off. Yeah, yeah. suck it. Yeah. The bra pings, knocks a lamp over. We're back in business. Absolutely correct, Sarah. Well done. It was in England and in London in particular. These pamphlets, as a matter of fact. A short narrative of the horrid massacre in Boston perpetrated on the evening of the 5th day of March 1770 by the soldiers of the 29th Regiment pamphlet was actually not distributed in Boston much at all. What? 
even though both of them contain tons of eyewitness testimony. I mean, they, they, they meticulously interviewed all the eyewitnesses and of course gathered all the most insidious and terrible descriptions of what happened and went to all this work and didn't distribute it. It wasn't like forbidden in Boston. People in Boston certainly read it, but they didn't want to taint the jury pool. Even then they were like, these, this is going to be the jury, and this town has a lot of loyalists in it. They really didn't want the fight to kick up again, but they really wanted to convince the people in London of their perspective. And this is another one where we talk about why it's important to sort of slow down and shine a light on the Boston Massacre and remember that in 1770, two really important things to explain why these pamphlets would have been sent to London first. One is we're not at war. These, these soldiers who perpetrated this act were peacekeepers there to guard a custom house from being looted and to just make sure that the people who were there to enforce the tax law were protected. That's their only job. So that makes sense why we have to explain how and when, if it was a war, you don't bother right. with that shit. It's a war. We're in trenches. We're fucking shooting at each other. This isn't a war. So we got to be super careful about how we explain this. One. Two is we're not America yet. <laughs> we are a colony, colony of Britain. Okay. And one of the things that means in short is this is King George III's court holding King George III's soldiers accountable for acts they perpetrated on King George III's subjects. Hmm. And that huh. is that is the landscape as we look at it <laughs> in October as these trials start up in 1770. And that also means, and this is where it starts to get like vertigo to even think about it from our point in history now, is that the king's lawyer is then defending the king's subjects. So the prosecution in this case is also wearing a white wig and is also serves the king as he persecutes the king's soldiers for acting out of line at the same time that we have the king's lawyers. It's, I mean, right. it'll make you nauseous if you think about yeah. it too long because you have Spinning. to go. Yeah, it's and but it's why when you go, why would they send it to London? Who gives a... That's why. Yeah. So the trial comes in October and the trial is called Rex versus Preston. And for the defense, our founding daddy, John Adams, who, of course, played by Paul Giamatti in the HBO series and in my head. <laughs> and this is and this is a big deal that John Adams takes the case to defend the British soldiers. It, I've heard it argued both ways. Again, with, with our perspective in history, it's easy to be like, he did it. They won. It was great. <laughs> but like he was in trouble. Like it is dangerous. Pe people were getting dragged out of their homes and tarred and feathered for just buying too much tea from an English guy, you know? Right. So to mm -hmm. defend them in court, it wasn't like that people were going to be awesome about it. And a lot of other lawyers turned it down. And John Adams like, ah, he, you know, there's a reason why we like this, why we loft this guy as one of our heroes. He, he did it for noble reasons, right? He's risking his career, his personal safety to defend despised British soldiers who killed five patriots. 
in his town. Okay. Um, and what he does though, in taking that is start to plant a flag in the notion that we, the colonies are reasoned and we have a rule of law here that we are not a savage mob that throws rocks and oyster shells at soldiers. We can take that breath, that important breath, and then can act reasonably and look at what's fair. And Thomas Preston is tried separately. So his, his trial starts in October, seven months after the shooting, and he is acquitted pretty quickly. And everyone was like, <gasps> whoa, that's crazy. That's awesome. And, and no one was more shocked than Thomas Preston that he was not found guilty of murder. They just couldn't prove by eyewitnesses or anybody who would swear by it that he gave an order to fire. Didn't happen. And and primarily, John Adams had to prove to everybody in that room that that engraving was fucking wrong. The engraving has Thomas Preston, who is named, of course, in the poem that Paul Revere writes, standing behind the troops with his sword up, yelling fucking fire, right? And all of the eyewitnesses are like, he was standing in front of his men, urging them not to fire. He, it wouldn't have happened that way. There were all of these eyewitnesses. He had some friends on the jury, so it was like, huh. Now, the eight soldiers who have to come to trial next, they come up about a month later, and they're like, fuck, fuckity, fuckerton, because the only chance we fucking had is that we were following orders. So if they've already said that we weren't given an order, that the dude never gave an order. What are we supposed to say? What, how are we supposed to explain why all of us fired? And they've already established, uh, you know, and they even kind of tried to throw Thomas Preston under the bus <laughs> and a bunch of them write a letter <laughs> to the judge. It's like, he totally told us to fire. <laughs> <We're> like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just, uh, <clears throat> he told me. <laughs> yeah, he did. He totally did. And, uh, and, and the court's like, nah, mate, you gotta, you're all going to have to do it too. Um, and so they all stand trial. And our guy, John Adams, with a whole new jury, just as unlikely as the previous time, maybe even more unlikely this time, successfully defends these guys. And his defense of the soldiers is artful. It's, I can't say it's entirely noble, but it is artful. And here's why. He essentially defends them on the basis of self-defense. They fired because their lives were in danger. And if they hadn't fired, they would have died. And they and the soldiers had tried to kind of use a self-defense, which was, we were ordered to fire, therefore we had to, because you, colonials, with the execution of Richard Ames, among others, have seen what happens to us if we don't follow orders. You know how brut brutalized we are as redcoats by our own captains and if we hadn't fired yeah either way yeah either way you're set up for yeah. failure it's either you get fucked by your people or you get fucked by the colonialists like totally. either way you're screwed. and that was their primary defense right and john adams lifted up that defense without saying they were ordered to fire just these guys were defending their lives but to do that he has to argue that the mob was going to kill him to a jury of Bostonians that don't want to paint the city of Boston as scary, mobbish people that throw stones at soldiers who So he is walking a very thin line. And one of those first victims I, I mentioned early on was this uh, formerly enslaved man named Crispus Attucks. 
We don't know a ton about him. If he had not died this day, we would have known absolutely nothing about him because as was the case for a lot of people, but especially a lot of black people, there just were no records taken. What few we had just were never, ever written down. It wasn't even that they were lost. They were just never made. We believe he was mixed race, uh, either black and white or possibly um, black and Native American. And John Adams uses the presence of all these teenage boys, sort of the 11-year-old boy who died before this, but definitely the 17-year-old boy who was killed during the massacre. And then if you remember, the other guy I said was Irish, who died a couple weeks later, he was shot in the belly. Even though these victims had had these hugely celebrated funerals where they were marched, thousands showed up, their caskets were, were engraved on a, uh, with skulls and crossbones on the cover of a newspaper, and they were allowed it to get the people originally riled up in their defense, John Adams sort of turns it and describes them as a mob, a motley rabble of saucy boys, Negroes, and mulattoes, Irish teagues and outlandish jo- uh, jack tars. Hmm. The, and that they were so violent and so crazy and they were acting unjustly. And that was why the soldiers, you know, had to defend themselves. And when he started to sense that the jury was like, yeah, but they're my guy. That's my mom. <laughs> they're from my town. <laughs> you know, those are my dudes. <laughs> those are my guys. And like, we're not yeah. really comfortable with like saying that, right? John Adams says to the jury, quote, the sun is not about to stand still or go out, nor the rivers to dry up because there was a mob in Boston the 5th of March that attacked a party of soldiers. Instead, he argues that that's what happens when you have a bunch of soldiers in a town trying to keep the peace in peacetime when there's no war. And even though he others the mob and he says, you know, these, because when you have a situation like that, idiots like the victims are going to act the way they're going to act. And the reason why I say this is that beautiful, artful, legal argument, but not terribly noble, is because it does effectively say you got to let these soldiers go and it's nobody's fault what happened. But if there is going to be fault, it's that the system is broken. And all these soldiers should go back to England where they belong. <laughs> right? That's yeah, a good point. It is peacetime. Yeah. It's, it's peacetime. It's, Why are they here? It's peacetime. It's peacetime. peacetime. And um, with that, I have another question, which goes to Dave. Oh. Okay. There were acquittals, but not all of the soldiers were acquitted. Two of them were found guilty of manslaughter. What was their punishment? This is multiple choice. A. All right. Okay. So the two that were found guilty of manslaughter, did they A, sit in the stocks in Boston Common for three days and three nights? Did they B, work without pay one month for a local colonial magistrate? C, get branded with the letter M? Or D, get sent back to their original base in Nova Scotia? Which we can all agree is a punishment by any measure. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Especially in March. Exactly. (laughs) Or or October, whenever. That's just Unless it's like August 8th. Uh, It's probably pretty bad. Yeah. Yes. That's it. Uh, I'm going to go A. Sit in the stocks in in Boston Common. That way, way, uh, 
Bostonians can go over there and kick them in the ass while they're in the <laughs> Their stocks. favorite thing to do, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? Okay, <laughs> great. Uh, I'm afraid that is incorrect. And in the spirit of love and unity, Sarah, do you want to stab at this question for a chance to get a second point and therefore be in a tie with Dave? So we know they didn't you send know. a sex. Did they work with a, a month without pay, get branded with the letter M, or get sent back to Nova Scotia? You know, I'm going to go with get sent back to Nova Scotia. Oh. I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not. They were branded, you guys. They Ooh. branded their thumbs with the letter M. Well, they're not going to be put to work. Their tiny, frail British hands aren't going to pick up anything heavy. <laughs> So. <laughs> well, know. not even now that they're branded. Like, it's, that's right. There was a sense of that's hope right. there. I could hardly hold my quill. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point, Dave. I do declare. <laughs> but isn't that kind of badass, too? And wow. don't you think that it would have been better to brand them with the letter B instead of M? Like the Red Sox B, yeah. like the one exactly. on my hat right now. That's yeah. what I'm saying. It's like, yeah. Because, like, murderer is like, ooh. That's that's tough. Like, don't I, fuck with yeah. me. I murdered oh, a guy. You know what? I, I, you I didn't even think of murderer. I thought M for massacre. <laughs> Honestly. You know what? I didn't even well, think of murderer. No. It's too bad they didn't brand him like MF. <laughs> so it's just like, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I bet there was probably. Motherfucking douchebag. I would like to know who got to do the branding, you know, because that's yeah. an important right? question. I think. Well, I'm um, sure some poor guy did the branding, but Paul Revere fucking took the credit for it. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. <laughs> Gather around. I invented the spoon, I think. <laughs> I, think I think that's one of the more overlooked things that you've said, Dave, is like, he invented the spoon. I don't know. I'm going to look that up. If he I'm did, sure. I'm going to apologize personally, but I feel like I feel like we were we, what were we fucking doing with our soup until Paul Revere uh, came around? What the hell were we thinking? We just, you know, just palming it, you know, just, <laughs> yeah, out of a shoe. Yeah. Yeah, you, you put it, it in a shoe, shoe and you drink out of a shoe. Okay. Well, you two are both from Boston. I defer to you, of course, at all things. <laughs> I want to come to make a, a quick note before we jump back in about this guy Crispus Attucks because what a fascinating rabbit hole of history the Boston Massacre was in general, but the victims and the way they were treated. Because Crispus Attucks is a black man, as I said, we wouldn't have known so much of his personal story had he not been, been involved in this. It, it's fascinating to me because there was another engraving, another famous engraving of the Boston Massacre that was done in the 1840s. Um, and this is, of course, as abolition is starting to brew. It's about 20 years before the official start of the Civil War, which is in 1861. But abolitionists, much like the Sons of Liberty, are trying to generate images and icons and artistic representations of things that can motivate a group of people politically. And just like Abraham Lincoln it, during the Civil War, harkens back to our founding fathers to do that, to find this time of origin in history when he says four score and seven years ago, our fathers, right? Big deal at the Gettysburg Address. Similarly, before that, they were also going back to the founding fathers to like get us through the Civil War. And they do this revamp of the engraving that looks again at a glance like the one we all recognize with the church in the back and the red coats and the colonials. But Crispus Attucks is front and center. 
he is he is in the center of that photo and he is dying boldly. And one of the things that sort of went along with that was a statement very articulated that that black people have were the, that a black person was the first blood shed in the revolution to free our country from British oppression. And in the 60s, Dr. Martin Luther King said, school children know that Crispus Attucks, a black man, was there from the very first moment shedding his blood for this cause. And I thought, at first, I thought that was just very interesting. The the beginning and sort of what I consider not really the end, but like another pinpoint of who Crispus Attucks sort of became in our cultural identity. But I didn't realize that there were actually all these peaks and valleys to Crispus between those two points. So if you are absorbing this story, and and as we all know, history is is what you ate for breakfast. It's not just distant. It's right next to you. So if, if your history was on March 6th, 1770, Crispus Attucks is a noble citizen of Boston, unfairly murdered. And, and he is, his, his casket is on the cover of the paper, and he is marched in a funeral attended by thousands. No other black or mixed race man would have had an honored funeral down the streets of Boston in almost any other given scenario. So in that day, he is a hero. November of 1770, when John Adams is talking to the jury, he's not just a mulatto thug gang, part of a mob that any reasonable person could understand why you would fire upon them because he was there, because he was one of the faces of the mob justified the murder itself. So just from March to November, he becomes flips from one to the other. But then between 1771 and 1783, that's that's between the Boston Massacre um, and the end of the Revolutionary War, they have on March 5th every year an anniversary of the Boston massacre that gets bigger and bigger and bigger every year. And they, they, the victims are held up and it's DDD every year. And as soon as we win the revolutionary war done, <laughs> we stop having those parades and we stop talking about <laughs> that stuff and it's completely over and it's Crispus who, and your textbooks and your art and your engravings aren't going to talk about any of them, least of all Crispus addicts until 1840. He's put right in the middle of that engraving and is reminded of how much a cornerstone of our American history he is. I found not only that fascinating nugget to this story, but illuminating to us on how we too tend to oppress and regurgitate various figures, depending on the engraving (laughs) that we're making or we're stealing, you know, or we're using to make a mob, you know? Or a spoon. Or a spoon, because he invented the spoon. (laughs) Allegedly. <laughs> Gather around and you shall hear the bullshit life of Paul Revere's fucking guy. <laughs> this is just a little nugget I wanted to give to you guys because I do plan on coming out to visit my sister. I will be knocking um, on your door and I really, really want to drink to excess and then yes. go to yeah. the tourist, the, the most tourist. I will allow you guys to tell me the cheesiest touristy i want my guide to have a costume oh God. I, I get the perfect oh, guy for yeah. you i want an, He's an act- a regular at the bar i work at great i want an, an actor yeah. i want someone who's yeah. going to try to do an accent yep. and um and when we go this is the question i want us to ask this guy okay because this is this is like a hidden nugget in the history so during the trial John Adams and the defense call as a witness a woman named Jane Crothers. 
she's just a lady, kind of like Crispus. We wouldn't have known shit about her. We know very little about her before or after this, except that she was fucking talking to Private Hugh White before he hit that kid with the gun, and she watched the whole thing happen, and she saw it all. So she was like a really valuable witness. She was very, very key in saying, yeah, Thomas Preston was not standing behind them ordering them to fire, like the engraving said, like she was so important. And given that, that she was under oath, that her testimony was so important, she also says that during the whole thing, there was a mysterious man dressed in a black, dark cloak standing behind the soldiers, quote, encouraging them to fire, saying, fire by God, I'll stand by you. And I, you guys saw all these books and all this shit I read and listened to. I have never heard fucking anything about this mysterious man in a black cloak. And this is hardly rumor. This is testimony under oath from a witness we trust. <laughs> and, the, and the transcript of Thomas Preston's trial is gone entirely. We don't have any of his court testimony. The only transcripts we have are little pieces from the soldiers. And that part's in there. Who the fuck was it? Is what the, the fuck was that? Introduction to the Illuminati. Right? That's girl. I'm saying if, if conspiracy shit curls your toes. Oh, and it does in this show. This was that was my bone for you guys. I I wanted wow. to, as everybody came and we've smoked our cigarette, so you know that it wasn't just a cheap one night stand. But I really know you, and I really care about you. I thought I'm going to close this one up with a mysterious, conspiracy-ridden mystery. I'm ready to go again already. Let me just get that sandwich. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh, I need a nap. <sighs> that, my my dear friends, is the hilfing of the Boston massacre. Holy hot fuck! Wow. And I would like to congratulate Dave. Oh against all odds, you have oh, won the contest. You. But you should feel still. It was only with two points. There were a lot of questions. I asked you guys seven questions. You got two. Sarah, you got one, but how glad are you you got one? I got one. <laughs> yeah. It's all you need is one, just to get on the That's board. That's all I need. Yeah. Just there. You know, I'm, I'm the first loser. Second place, first loser. Ooh. Oh, nobody loses in a menage a trois. Everybody comes in third, you know, oh. so to speak. Every... <laughs> <laughs> oh, the show is great. It's so good. That was a blast. And they're great. Sarah Retallick and Dave Houghton of In a Pickle Radio. You can find them, subscribe to their podcast. They are everywhere you're currently listening to me. Or you can just boop, click their link in our show notes. Now in our next dive into the annals of history, the hilfing of infamous occultist Aleister Crowley. He was a favorite of Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and L. Ron Hubbard. And wow, what a fascinating prick this guy is. Oh, and I'll be joined by the celebrated chef, Hyla Johnson, who has cooking shows, has written several cookbooks, and is an absolute joy to health with. <laughs> Until then, 
Our theme song was composed and performed by Kat Perkins. A reminder that you can find my sources, links to the books, documentaries, and articles I reference in the summary of this episode or by emailing us, hilfpodcast at gmail.com or messaging us on social media at hilfpodcast. This has been Hilf. History I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, reminding you that history is a party and everybody's coming. Ha, ha, ha.